Thanks for joining us on the Oasis Church Podcast. To find out more about Oasis, visit CelebrateTheJourney.org. During this episode, Pastor Dennis Ritchie shares a great message that will lead you to new and deeper levels with Jesus Christ. So open up a Bible, grab a notebook, or simply listen along. of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. It was the late 1950s. Is that too loud out there for you? It, it was the late 1950s when a, uh, I think he was a theologian, he had written about C.S. Lewis. And he accused of C.S. He accused C.S. Lewis of uh, not caring for the Sermon on the Mount. And so C.S. Lewis, being the intellectual beast that he really was, um, his response to this theologian who printed this, uh, he said, "If you define caring as liking or um, or enjoying," he said, "No, I don't care about the Sermon on the Mount." He's quoted as saying, who likes being knocked flat on their face by a sledgehammer? And then he said this, and I quote, I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. What he's saying is if if the Sermon on the Mount, if you can read it and not have any sense of conviction, um, you may be in a deadly spiritual condition. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, eight Beatitudes, eight kingdom blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those statements are counter to what our culture and our society say is blessed. Blessed if you've got lots of money. Blessed if you've got multiple houses. Blessed if you are in power. Blessed if you are the the type A personality just making their way up the corporate ladder. And so the blessings that Jesus speaks of in the Beatitudes run counter to culture, what culture would say is blessed. What Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn and the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And then he goes into the teaching about salt and light. And I wonder how many of us can just stand with our, with our chest out and our shoulders back to say, I have lived as bright as Jesus has called me to live in the world. And then there's that verse that I've been really wrestling with over the, this whole series. And it's verse 20 in chapter 5 when he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when I read that, just on its own, just out of context, I go... Ugh. So after he makes this statement, these, your, your righteousness needs to exceed that of those who have dedicated their life to following God's law. He gives us six examples of what that righteousness is going to look like. 
they are incredibly demanding in each of those examples we cannot live into without the indwelling and the power and the anointing of the holy spirit and with the holy spirit into in us alive and well we can live the way jesus calls us to live and if you read through chapters five six and seven in the gospel of matthew every almost every line in that in those texts if we really take it to heart should cause a check in your spirit should cause a little twang of pain in your heart to say pain is not necessarily such a bad thing you know when you get hurt or you break something or you get hurt really bad um, it's that initial shock of I remember skiing one time and I'm going down first time skiing and I knew it wasn't going to end well when I crashed getting off the uh, the ski lift and they had to shut it down because I look like a yard sale skis up in the air I'm just covered with snow and so I'm like I got this and so you know you snow plow and then you get around the corner and I look and the hill is much bigger at the top than it is looking from the bottom and so I start down this hill not knowing anything about skiing thinking I've watched it on TV you just Shush, right? You you go back and forth. Now, and I got so much speed, I decided I better fall. And when I fell, my chin hit my chest so hard, I felt like I got hit with a baseball bat. But that initial ow was okay. But then over the next three days, four days, as my body is healing, that pain was there. But what that pain told me, it was a reminder that, in fact, my body was healing from the yard sale that they that they called from the ski lift above me because I couldn't do it privately. I had to do it in front of the entire mountain, but I digress. But I can feel my body healing itself. And that's sometimes the goodness of pain. Pain lets you know that you're being healed, that your body is healing yourself. You've broken a bone. It's the initial hurt. And then they wrap it up and they put the cast on and then it throbs and it hurts because pain is the way, is the, uh, is the, the signal that the body is healing itself. And so sometimes when you read the scripture, if it causes that twinge of pain, it's the spirit pointing out, it's your spirit realizing where you might be and where Jesus is calling you to go. And that pain could be a healing pain because it's, it's moving you in the direction that Jesus wants you to go. And that's kind of what the Sermon on the Mount really is. It's this painful, uh, it, it should cause some angst in our spirit. To go, man, I, I got ways to move in that thing. But, you know, it's also, I, I believe that those three chapters are God paying humanity a, a beautiful compliment. The very fact that Jesus commands us to live into those passages means that we can live into those passages, that we have been given all that we need to live into those passages, that we've been given the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to live as people, or, or, or as live as who we already are. This is, the Sermon on the Mount is not trying to get you to be someone else. The Sermon on the Mount is trying to get us to live into who we already are in Christ. It's, it's not trying to change you. It's saying you've already been changed, and this is what the change looks like in your move in this direction. The sixth and the final uh, righteousness example 
is the example of, of love. Love is throughout the scripture. You'll see it over and over again. It is a major theme, a major thread. Every, Jesus said everything in the scripture boils down to this. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything boils down to this. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This whole book boils down to love God. All right, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not even the tax collectors are doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, out of the box, Jesus is going to state the Old Testament once again. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was the traditional teaching of the time of Jesus for the common person in Palestine. This is what we would have been taught as a Jew in Jesus' day. Now, the love your neighbor part comes right out of Leviticus chapter 19, I believe, 19 verse 18. But in that text, in that Old Testament reference where God says to love your neighbor, no, nowhere in the Old Testament text is and hate your enemy. That's not found in the Old Testament. It was added by the scribes and the Pharisees probably long before Jesus' day. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why would they add love your enemy or um, lo love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Why would they teach something like that? Well, that's a good question. Thanks for asking. You set up my, my transition here very nicely. It seems that the, um, the scribes and the Pharisees, they looked at that word neighbor and they went, who is our neighbor? And they decided that only Jews, only fellow Jews were our neighbor. Everybody else was a, a foreigner. That means everybody else is an enemy. That means everybody else needs to be hated. We love our Jewish brothers and sisters, and we hate everyone else. Now you might think, well, that's kind of a far stretch, but it's really not if you read the Bible, if you read the Scripture. In the story of the Old Testament, God says to the, uh, to the Israelites, you have to go in and, and kill all the Canaanites to take their land. And then if you read the Psalms, the, uh, the impecratory Psalms, these are Psalms that are written that are calling down the wrath and the, and, the, uh, and the judgment and the punishment of God against Israel's enemies. God, would you destroy them? Would you make their... their uh, they're women, widows, and childless. I mean, all of these things. And so the, the leaders, the religious leaders of the time went, well, it just stands to reason that Israelites are our neighbor. Everyone else needs to be hated because they're obviously against God. Now, by the time Jesus shows up, hatred of the foreigner from the average Jew was pretty intense. They believed that by hating a foreigner, they were honoring God. 
and it was an act of worship. When you came against those who did not follow the one true God and you would hate them, then you were, uh, you were honoring God. You were pleasing God. You were worshiping God. The degree, the standard of love in the day of Jesus was a, a love of limits. I will only love those who love me. I will only love those who are the same as me, who have the same religion as me, who have the same morality or ethics, who read the same, uh, the same sacred books. Those are the people that are my neighbors. Everyone else I'm going to hate because I'm going to honor God. Let's just say that there weren't a lot of Gentiles uh, vacationing in Palestine during this time. But as we know from the past five uh, occasions, Jesus is going to raise the bar. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And are not even tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? And even pagans, pagans do that. It's a pretty radical concept for Jesus to come out and say, love your enemies and pray for those who, who persecute you. The, the people that Jesus would be speaking to would have been, once again, scratching their heads going, that just doesn't make sense. He is pushing against the Mosaic law that says we are to love our neighbor and hate our enemies, which wasn't written in the law. It was added but this is the way that they would have lived. And Jesus going, wait, we're, we're to love our enemies, people who hate our God, who hate our people, who hate our nation. We're supposed to, to love them? Are you kidding me? It wouldn't make sense. Enemies required rejection, and in that rejection, it required hatred. You see, the love of the people in Jesus day was a love of limits. But what Jesus is teaching here is the love that is limitless. And the fact that Jesus uses the plural, enemies, enemies. He's talking about people coming at you personally, people who have wronged you, people who have hurt you, people who have, have a dragged your name through the mud. Those are the people that he's saying we are to love and to, and to pray for. And then Jesus is going to give us two reasons. The first reason you're to do this is so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And when it says children of your Father in heaven, that means it's the Hebrew way of saying that your actions, if you do this, if you live this way, if you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, your actions will be the same as your heavenly Father. You will be considered his children because you are living in the same way that he is living. So if you impartially show love and grace to your friends and to your enemies, you are then like your Father in heaven. He sends rain on the good and the evil. The sun comes up on those who would worship him and those who would not. And then in 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, no one listening to Jesus would have missed the point that he's trying to make. Rome used the tax system as they kind of... Uh, as they kind of took over a nation, um, they would pose in taxes on that nation. That's how they kept the whole empire running. 
And so they would hire nationals in that country to get those taxes, to take those taxes. And those tax collectors were employed by Rome. They had to get a certain amount of money every month, every week, however it was worked out. And if they were able to get more than that, they got to keep that money. So it behooved them to charge more. If your taxes for Rome were $10, they would charge you 15 and pocket the 5 Tax collectors were very rich crooks in Jesus' day. That's just the truth of the matter. And what he is saying is these no good tax collectors, they love their own buddies who are tax collectors. And so if we're doing the same thing, what good is it? We're acting just like those who we look down on and hate. If you love somebody who loves you best, eh, big deal, that's pretty easy. Even the tax collectors can do that. Verse 47, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. Jesus is calling for us, his followers, to live differently in this world. To live in such a way that the way we show love is uncommon, not just common. That our love would be a love of, of more. A love without cultural limitations or socioeconomic limitations. The great preacher, writer, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he would explain it this way. I'm going to paraphrase most of this. I just took some notes. He said, there are men and women of a very high moral degree. There are men and women that live in this world that are that are uh, integritous and they have a good character and they're hard workers and they love their moms and their dads and their kids and they love their spouses and they do well in the world. They do good in the world and they're honest. They don't steal. And yet those people, those good moral people, generous people reject the gospel of Christ. But that still doesn't negate their, their goodness, that they're trying to do good in the world, that they're loving people in the world. And he would say that the Christian needs to love beyond what the natural person would love. And he said this, we are called to live separately from the worst of human nature. And we are called to live to exceed the very best of human nature. Is our love, does it look different? from the most generous non-Christians out there. So we have to wrestle with the question of more. Is there something in the way I treat people that's different from the rest of the world? Does the way I love go beyond what what is normal? It's an important question to ask because if we can't at least say we're moving in that direction, we may not be as Christian as we like to think of ourselves. It's not about perfection. It's never about perfection. But it's about movement. It's about moving towards Christ. 
It's about the progressive sanctification of becoming just a little bit every day more and more like Jesus. Is our love the same love as the rest of the world? Or do we stand out a little different? And so let's go back to verse 44. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Please know that Jesus is not asking us to love our enemies the same way that we love our kids or our spouse or our family or our close friends. Uh, There are people in our lives where love comes very easy. Like, it doesn't take work to love them. Now, parents, I'm not talking about your kids. I'm talking about all the other people in your life. It it, it doesn't take a lot to, to love them. There's no effort on our part. And so the love that Jesus is getting at isn't a romantic love. It's not an emotional love. It's not the love that we have for family. Jesus is commanding us uh, to love our enemies with an agape love. It's a love that's deliberate. It's a love that's intelligent. It's a love that's determined. It's a love that shows kindness to your enemy. A love that shows kindness to your enemy. So, you know at your work, that person who just gets under your skin or they're mean towards you, yeah, love your enemy. You know that neighbor, the one neighbor in your neighborhood that you want to, you just wish they would put a for sale sign in their front yard and move? That's your enemy. You know that kid in school who picks on everyone? Yeah. Love your enemy. Because those are the people Jesus is speaking of. How can we make those people, how can we make their day a better day? How can we put a smile on their face? What could we do for them, for them to stand back and go, why would they do that? Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. To exercise love doesn't mean you're feeling love towards that person. That's not what it says. It doesn't say feel love towards your enemy and and hug them with Skittles and unicorns. C.S. Lewis again would say that he's going to love with the grace of Christ within him. I want to read you something that he wrote from Mere Christianity. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, you should read Mere Christianity if you're a mere Christian. But he writes this. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as you do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections of or likings, And the Christian has only charity. 
a worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined liking at the beginning. This more is what differentiates the follower of Jesus and not the follower of Jesus. This more needs to shine brightly into the world. Is our love more than the most loving, generous, non-Christian person you know? Because according to God's word, it should. We need to be moving in that direction. He is not commanding or calling us to live in a way that is contrary to who we are. He's calling us to live in a way that is complementary to who we are. We are already this in the scripture because of the spirit indwelling in us. And he's calling us to live into that. And it's hard and it can be difficult and it doesn't make sense. And it's countercultural to do good to people who come at you, who persecute you, who annoy you. It's, are we treating them kindly? How is it you can put a smile on somebody's face who doesn't like you? This week, even if that smile is, what a sucker. They gave me that. Yeah, I did. And so we need to move in this direction, church. We are commanded to love. We are commanded to pray for people who come at us. Jesus, think of Jesus, possibly as they're nailing nails into his hands on the cross. He prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine that? They, 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 they hoist him up. His back is just torn apart from the whip. He's got nails in his hands. He's got nails in his feet. As his lungs fill with water, as he slides down that cross and tries to lift himself up to get a breath. As people are, are mocking at him, spitting at him, yelling at him, he looks out and what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That, my friends, is love. That is what it means to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. See, when we pray for those coming at us, it's like, it's like we, we're forcing them to the throne of God. They don't even know it, but we're going to put them there ourselves. Father, this person has come at me. They have hurt me, and yet I want you to bless them. Father, would you bless them? Because you can't pray long for a person and continue to hate them or be angry with them or want to go after them. Prayer may or may not change them. I will guarantee you prayer will change you. Prayer will change your heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Your heart. And so, Lord, would you continue to empower your church to live into these words? Pray against guilt, Lord. The 
because there is not one that loves the way you've called us to. But I pray for a grace-filled conviction that right now, Lord, you are bringing uh, to memory where we need to bless someone who has hurt us. The person we need to pray for who's persecuted us. As Jim said, there's going to be some men and women up here that are willing to pray for you. If, if there's something you need to get off your chest and be prayed for, please do so. Um, so thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Holy Spirit, for the gift of forgiveness, and for the grace of love. Thank you that you first loved us. Thank you that you went to the cross for us. Let us remember those events as we now love our enemies and as we pray for those who persecute us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.